What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Write Who You Know, the screenwriting podcast. That's the behind the scenes of the behind the scenes. I'm Matt Hausfetter. And uh, God, it's, today is uh, Wednesday, May 31st. Uh, we've got uh, week four of the strike. Uh, it's about to be a full-blown month as of tomorrow. Uh, I've been seeing a lot of friendly faces out there on the picket lines, trying to remain vigilant and out there and uh, motivated. And it's been really great. Uh, you know, I, I think last week I was having a down moment about it. This week I'm back up, baby. Um, and I truly think that's uh, because of the community of writers that I've cultivated and, you know, getting to see old friends by surprise uh, out there. And speaking of making new friends and making new connections and being a hustler, which is what I think is incredibly important that no one tells you that writing is the easy part and putting the pieces together and meeting people and not in a phony bullshit, sycophantic, self-serving way, but you know, when you meet people that you uh, think are cool that are doing stuff that you're doing and working with people that you want to be working with, I find that most times if you shoot your shot and, you know, you are gracious about it and do it in a nice, respectful way, a lot of times, um, you know, you may end up forming a relationship with somebody, whether it's a, a work colleague or someone you meet at a gym or at a basketball game or a concert, uh, Everywhere and everyone uh, is trying to climb this hill called Hollywood, at least in the, in Los Angeles. And I have been so lucky enough, or maybe crazy enough, or uh, I don't know what, what the right adjective is, but uh, Dan Levy, who is on the podcast today, is a awesome, hilarious comedian. Uh, he's been touring all summer, opening up for John Mulaney at arenas around the country. And I met him uh, because during the pandemic, I noticed him on Instagram uh, and that he was super funny and had worked with a lot of my screenwriter friends and had an affinity for pop punk and vintage concert shirts, vintage rock shirts. And so I slid into his DMs and, you know, there's no other way to say it than I, I, I guess I was flirting with him and just uh, I convinced him to come and have coffee with me and we got together and had a great coffee and, uh, you know, we thought maybe there's an opportunity for him to come and work on Fairfax before it, uh, went away. And long story short, uh, I think he's an awesome dude and I'm so happy that he came and did this podcast. Uh, if you have not seen, uh, indebted on NBC, that's a bummer because it's a show he created with Adam Pally as the star and Fran Drescher as the star that is fucking hilarious. He has written on shows like Whitney. He has written on the new incarnation of how I met your mother, where he was the showrunner. He wrote on four seasons of the Goldbergs sold shows all over town with every single studio and network. He's had overalls at Sony. He does it all. Honestly, I thought nobody worked harder in Hollywood than me. And then I met Dan. Uh, so you should check out his comedy. He's got a premium blend and a Comedy Central Presents. He has opened up, like I said, for Mulaney all summer long. He's going back out on tour at cities across America this summer. You should check him out uh, on Instagram. I think he's at Dan Levy Show. Uh, but here he is, Dan Levy. He has sold multiple shows. He's worked with Kevin Hart in television, Whitney Cummings, Carter and Craig Bays, uh, just to name a few. Uh, so without further ado, here's my interview with pop punk uh, lover, concert t-shirt wearer, stand-up comedy screenwriter extraordinaire, Dan Levy. Pass. 
a really hard time right now. The industry's contracting. Come back to us and get some bigger attachments. Tell them right what you know. No, tell them right who you know. Dude, I want to talk to you about your 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 pop punk roots and shit because other than like me, I feel like there isn't many people in town, at least that I've met like creatives or whatever, mm-hmm. that have vintage shirts that like the bands that I still like when I was 13. So what I want to know is like, first, who I find that, you know, a older brother or a cooler friend usually introduces you to like punk and like, you know, or is like, here, this is the Sex Pistols. What was your foray into this whole world or entree rather? It was just getting into like Green Day early and then Green Day led to like Operation Ivy and then Rancid and just became like everything I was into in middle school into high school. So did you, as it, was it like on MTV or like how did like, how? yeah, it was on, I saw basket case. I remember seeing the basket case that video. I remember. Yep. And then I had a buddy whose dad was a concert promoter. So we were able to, in Connecticut, go to concerts all the time in high school. So I saw green day. We saw the, you know, we, we saw the dookie tour, no doubt Bush, like dude, all the same concerts, all, <laughs> those, the all those concerts we went to, like I saw no doubt like four times. And, yep. and Did you Bush. see the tragic kingdom and the, the, um, the return of Saturn? Yeah. Tour? Yeah. I saw white zombie too. That's not really, popular, <laughs> but I love white zombie. Um, but yeah, so I just, uh, I've been into it forever, but they're also Alan Yang is a huge pop punk guy. The late Harris Whittles was a huge pop punk guy. Oh, so there's definitely like some, uh, some, some crossover with people who are, in the comedy creative space, loving pop punk. Good, good. I'm glad. So, how, how do you feel about um, the Blink 182 reunion? Um, I'm going. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm thrilled about it too. Um, do you watch the Kardashians? I don't. Okay. Because Travis, like the way that Travis uh, is portrayed on that show, to just think of like he was a fucking aquabat and now he is <laughs> yeah. like at the center of the most famous of the most famous and they had like this whole uh, hour and a half special about their wedding and that like Dolce and Gabbana did his suits and her dress and Mark came to the wedding and like, you know, was just like, hey, like being totally funny. <laughs> um, and it's crazy to think that that dude's journey, you know, from, you know, the urethra chronicles or whatever the fuck. Yeah. So I'm just glad to He's see He's an it. incredible drummer though. Yeah. He's amazing. He's the best. Yeah. I'm, so- I'm going to go see them. I'm seeing them June 17th. How many times have you seen Blink before, like in your childhood growing up? I only saw them like three times. Okay. For Um, me, they were like the band that I saw the most because I just feel like over the years they, in different incarnations, I I did see the Matt Skiba incarnation, which wasn't bad, but- No, I like Matt Skiba. You know, um, did he, is he okay? I'm hearing rumors there's like a drug thing going on. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with him, but I do like him as a musician. I'm not that aware of sort of, uh, you know, what's going on with these guys personally, but I'm very excited and I do like their music. Okay, good. Yeah. And so how did you get into vintage shirts, Dan? Like vintage shirts to something I've always, I've always had like pieces. I'm, I'm really like clothes. I've always, you know, I've been collecting sneakers for like 20 years. I don't really collect sneakers anymore, but since I'm 18, I've been buying and selling and the whole thing. So you were like an original reseller of... Oh, yeah. Like I would like get to Nike Town in Boston at like 4 a.m. and wait to get like the military force. Like I was that <laughs> psychotic. And then it just became like too many people got into it. It got less cool. You know, it just became the thing where like, especially in comedy, people just started like buying shoes because they could buy them. Mm-hmm. And it's not the same as like hunting them, yeah. you know? So I, uh, I just have always been into, I like collecting stuff. So I had so many sneakers and then I always had, I always had, you know, a few t-shirts here and there, a lot of green day stuff. But then honestly, it was during the pandemic that I got in deep and I was just on all the Instagram lives following all those guys. 
and uh, were you buying and, stuff off them, like participating? Is oh it- yeah, like auctions, constantly auctioning stuff. Just you know, n- negotiating back and forth with dudes in Thailand, trying to get like a Rage Against the Machine long sleeve <laughs> tee. Like it was nuts. I got like way deep. I mean, to the point where I was like on text chains with people. There's this one dude, Frank, who's incredible, who is a uh, merch guy for bands, and he travels the world. And he has an insane collection, so he kind of – so then I, like, joined his sort of, like, secret club where he would, like, you know, let us know shirts he got. And he actually did get me this European Green Day Insomniac tour that was incredible that I got that T-shirt. Is he – what – does he have a special Instagram handle? I feel like – oh, the minor thread. Is is it that guy that does – No, he's um Frank something. I'll, I'll, I'll okay. look it up. I, I feel bad because not that not many people listening to this are very into T-shirts. <laughs> but in case Frank hears it, I want people to know – that it's uh by the way Dan this is gonna get big by the way I want you to know there was like a thousand percent jump from last week because of uh the studio guy that I had on during the strike or whatever okay so we are we are we are brick by brick building this house obviously I don't have like the Whitney or the fucking whomevers you may be on sure but like you know people want to hear uh what's going on with (laughs) with television business and how it affects the t-shirt market (laughs) yes yes so it's Frank Finelli and he's a Frank T WWK and he has great stuff and what's your favorite shirt that you have, would you say? Uh, my favorite shirt that I have? Yeah, like mine, I think, is my garbage shirt. Uh, um, I have... Or like your favorite piece of clothes. It doesn't have I have an shirt. Operation IVT that I got, you know, from Thailand. Because basically what, what, what happens is that people would get rid of all their shirts and then they put them to like Goodwill or whatever, and then it would be shipped across the world so that's how i'm always wondering i'm like how the fuck does this shirt get to japan oh yeah they have they have incredible stuff so that that might be my favorite shirt because it's this weird like light blue that you can't find anywhere else and it's an original shirt from the release of the album i think that's my favorite shirt but it's a little short but i like that is there anything on the back is there a back hit as they say in the industry lookout records great yeah that's that's what you want yeah i recently sold my sublime uh, Lookout Records because it was just so fucking thrash that like I wore it to like a cool kickback and some girls were like cool shirt and like normally it's like fucking cool shirt but they were like making fun of me they're like it looks like something that is pre-bought and like that fucking distressed right. yeah, yeah Um, so it had to go yeah yeah Um, but these t-shirt guys are psychotic they know exactly what data things are from if it's you know double stitched all that stuff single stitch like it's it's very intense all the Armpit to arm, you know, pit to pit <laughs> sizing. It's uh, they are no joke. Uh, are you on Depop as well? Like during the pandemic, like is I'm it- not, but the guy 1980 something who was really popular during Instagram auctioning T-shirts during that time. He also created, you know, um, Brutal Flea. I don't know if anyone cares about this, but no, dude, he but- is now on Depop. But I, I am not. When you are selling, how are you doing it? What are you StockX? Are you an eBay guy? Uh, eBay and Grailed. Um. So, dude, you grew up in Stamford, Connecticut, yeah? Yeah. I did a little homework on you. Yep. I grew up in Stamford, Connecticut, home of WWE, mm-hmm. um, and that's it, pretty much. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I grew up in Connecticut, uh, went to Emerson, moved to LA. Oh, that's right. You're a fucking Boston guy. Yeah. I yeah. also read you did, uh, your mom may have brought you to a comedy school when you were nine. Is that- Yeah. Yeah, I did the Half Pint Players. Well, I, I originally, when I was nine, I started this place called Curtain Call, which was like a theater you know like theater class in stanford it was like in like an office room and then i started doing improv there and then i started doing like half pint players it was a sketch group so i was been sort of trying to do comedy since i'm nine years old the the fact that you knew what you wanted to do or like did you did was it just like a curricular like an extracurricular like karate or did you actually know when you were nine like 
I'm doing this forever. Like, no, I remember when I was nine, I watched A and E, even the improv, and I was laughing so hard at my friend Jason Sleepover, and I was like, I'm going to do this. And that's, I've always known what I wanted to do. I didn't even, when I graduated, I started doing comedy, you know, professionally while I was at, in college. So, like, when I graduated, I moved right to LA and then I went on a college tour for like four years which makes no sense to move to LA I should have like just stayed at my parents place while I traveled around the east coast where all the colleges were but I didn't know I was really stupid I was 20 and so you did that for four years oh well I just that just kind of like started like I yeah never, you're the, the starting just, of your career. starting of everything I just kind of like started doing colleges and then that led to comedy clubs and I was like doing a lot of like hosting stuff and all that stuff and so this is where you've met most of the people that you know you are working like is that where you met Mulaney et cetera et cetera yeah I met I met all those guys it was like Mulaney Nick Kroll Aziz Whitney it was all during like the beginning of sort of our stand-up days yeah um but uh but yeah because it's it's weird and I know I've told you this and you're like you're a fucking idiot I had when I when I you know met you or became aware of you, it was because of um, you know the group of friends that you had in writing. I had no idea that you were this fucking stand up comedian. And like you were like, didn't you ever see Comedy Central when you were fucking? That's I think that's what you said to me. And I was yeah. like, like I was yes, like, dude, I, I did Premium Blend. I had a Comedy Central presents. <laughs> like when I think about it, like I'm sure I have seen, but it wasn't. It was always just like the fucking dude that was friends with all of these great other writers. Uh, and so I think it's fucking incredible that you do comedy, you write comedy, and you also like T-shirts and punk bands. I mean, like, I, I truly say... Really, who's better than me? No, well, I mean, <laughs> honestly, I, I like to think to myself, like, nobody hustles as hard as me. And then when I saw you or met you, I was like, oh, he does what I do. And then on top of that is doing fucking stand-up comedy every night. Like, I, I, and I want, like, I love comedy and I did it, but I didn't, I stopped doing it because I never wanted, I could never imagine the lifestyle of, like, I always say, if you gave me a Netflix hour, I'd prepare for it for a long time and crush the shit out of it. But if you needed me to tour for the years to get up to the point where you are given a special, I have no interest in like doing, you know, what the, the you know. Well, that's what's the best thing about stand up, you know, is that there are no shortcuts. You just have to be really funny and do it forever. Like when you first start doing stand up, you're like, People, you're like, oh, I've been doing it for six years. And people like laugh at you. You're like, six years seems long. It's like, no, you have to be doing comedy for 20 years to be really funny. It's just sort of, how it goes dude there are people that i feel like didn't get their due until like later and later in life you yeah know, it's happening more and more now just because of the way everything is you know so how did you end up fucking screenwriting like emerson like uh, sure like maybe but like what got you as someone who's you know out there and being a comic and and meeting people doing an improv like what made you want to sit al alone in a room and like write well I never wanted to sit in alone in a room and write, but I, I basically, that's that's, that's <laughs> that was true. never what I thought it would be. Um, <laughs> no, I was doing stand up. I was hosting like, you know, all these MTV shows and doing all that stuff on Comedy Central that you never saw. And then, um, <laughs> but wait, I want to say, I don't mean that as an insult. No, no, like, I'm totally okay. kidding. <laughs> no, but then I, uh, really what happened was I was doing a, um, I was doing a bit in my stand up act about being in a long distance relationship and how frustrating this is, especially when you're in college. And, uh, and then I did it and I pitched it as like a show to crackle as a web series. And that's, that's, that was kind of what started. Cause I basically during this time in like the early mid two thousands crackle oh, and I know. Sony, they would just like give you like a check to go make stuff. A friend so, of mine had a show there called hot, hot LA, probably at the same time as right. Yeah, I don't know that show, but no, I'm sure no one, does, no one, no one knows Crackle shows. shows. So my show was called, was called Laundish Relationship. We did 10 episodes, five minutes each, and 
well, had to write like a full series. It was with Sony, so I had like Glenn Edelman and Tal Rabinowitz. They were my they were my executives. Like That's it was great. a TV show, and um, we developed this thing and we shot it. Like it was it was I wrote it and I shot it. I was in it and it was great. And then it came out on Crackle, and then you know it was just out. And then it basically like six months later, I pitched it to MTV as a show. And then they're like, this is great. Let's let's buy it. And then we shot a pilot of that. So then I took 10 episodes of Crackle. We created a, like a pilot. We shot that for like a very low budget. And then um, it did not get picked up, but it was still part of like Sony. So it was like a Sony show for MTV. And then Sony was like, you know, that didn't get picked up. We should do something else. So then they hooked me up with Jamie Tarsus, no longer with us. It was mm-hmm. great. And she was the first producer I worked with to develop a sitcom, like a network sitcom. So then this was like, I don't know, maybe 2009 or something. And then we um, developed this show, and then I pitched a sitcom with her, and uh, and that was the first sitcom I sold. Then I was- What was it called? It was, was called Big Kids. And what was the premise? It was um, basically like, you know, like a young, like a, a dad who, you know, was like, you know, it was basically like a wife has to take care of her kids and and her husband. Mm-hmm. Dad, he, is, dad is the third brother, essentially. Yeah, something like that. Like, and it, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't the most original idea, but we sold it. It was yeah. great. I didn't even have kids then. But um, we did that. <laughs> it was just like, I didn't fucking know what I was talking about. But I love pitching, you know. So then we sold that show. I wrote that show. And I wrote that the same time that Whitney was writing the Whitney sitcom. So Whitney and I are good friends. We'd always like punch each other stuff up. So then she said to me, she's like, hey, if my show gets picked up. You got to work on it. If your show gets picked up, I'll, I'll work on your show. I was like, great. And then I never did anything. I was never in a writer's room. I had no clue. I just wrote a pilot, but Jamie Tarsus was so awesome. And she was like very complimentary. And she just sort of was so such a very, she was an incredible producer because she was so positive, you know, and it made you feel good. Yeah. That's what you want to hear. You know, when you get notes, you don't, you want good bedside yeah. manner, you know, but she was great. Anyways, my show did not get picked up. Whitney's pilot got picked up and two broke girls got picked up. So I ended up sort of helping Whitney on both shows. And then, then when Whitney got picked up, she was like, Hey, do you want to work on a sitcom? And I was like, I don't know. I'd have never worked on a sitcom before. And then I did. So then my first sitcom job was Whitney. And it was like a, a crazy experience because I knew her so well, but I was like a low level writer, <laughs> but I knew what she thought was funny. So people would also sort of like talk to me, but I was also kind of a mole, you know, but also the show was imploding constantly because it was just the billboards. People were making fun of it, but it, but it was actually doing well. So it got picked up and it was uh it was a crazy experience. But during that process, I was like, Oh, this is fun. These people are really funny. And um, I might want to continue doing this. I want to go back to a second because you said you love pitching. And I think most writers hate pitching. Yes. Can you expand upon that a little bit for me, Dan? Obviously, you're a performer, but I'm just, you know. I I just like pitching. I have, like, a whole sort of format that I do. And um, I liked it better before Zoom. Yeah, me, Obviously. Um, I mean, I've done some Zoom pitches that have been good. But, like, I just like the energy. I like feeding off the people. And I feel like I could just get my ideas across, you know, when I'm in person pitching and also honestly i could just be the funniest i could be in person and that is always sort of like the goal when pitching a comedy is to have them like laughing so much that they don't really even know what you're talking about then they just buy it that's true do you when you say you have a formula like what like do you have a time limit that you're like i gotta be i'm in and out in 15 minutes or like what's your like nine page it's nine pages a nine page pitch okay a nine page pitch and normally you know i really try to like relate you know, anything I'm pitching to like, I try to p- take it from my life, you know, always just cause that just is better. 
for writing it, but also pitching it for sure. Yeah. So I always start with like a story that is something relatable to what the show will be and my own life, like a funny story, like a personal way in a personal is like a, yeah, like a funny bit to start it. And then I kind of go into, you know, what the show is briefly, uh, and then go directly into the characters, like big detailed character stuff. And then, um, talk about sort of the tone where the show will go um, possible episode ideas and that sort of it. And then you're out. And then it's Q and A. Then it's Q and A. Yeah. Uh, how have you have you sold shows in the room? Just like boom, we'll take it like yes. immediately. Yeah. What's that feeling like for the PA? Just like uh, you. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 almost like you feel like if they don't buy it in the room, then they might not buy it. That's kind of how I go into all my pitches. It's like you basically you know, want them to just kind of go and yeah, let's do it. Like I've had people say, let's do it. Yeah. That's, know, that's where I, that's, or then also like, I'd love like, um, you know, at HBO, like they, they'll say things like, uh, you know, we, we, this is a really interesting idea. We'd love to develop it further. If you want to develop it with us, you know, that kind of stuff. Oh, and you're like, like, okay. Like, let's fucking do Very it. Very coy, but yes. Um, okay. Yeah. So it's, so it's, um, uh, so it's good, you know. Who did sold? Like, that's something my dad would do, you know, like on a car lot. <laughs> no, no, I don't think anyone. Uh, <laughs> no, but there was there was this pitch I had that I've, you know, been working on forever. But I did this. It was during the pandemic. It was being the pandemic. And it was like me and Kevin Hart and like a thousand executives. And there's no one better to pitch anything than him. <laughs> I <bet>. So he <laughs> was out of control funny. And it was amazing. And it's like almost like before we finished the pitch, they were like, yes, 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 we'll do this. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking awesome. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's uh, it, feel, it feels good because then you know, okay. that the, the best part of any TV project is – the moment, bef- the moment between like selling the show and having to start writing it, that's when it's the best. Because then you're like, I got something going on. People are emailing, congratulations. <laughs> you're like so pumped. But then when you have to start, that's when it gets like, fuck. Yeah. Uh, it takes like it, it takes way too fucking long to negotiate. By the way, like I, you know, like my, I had friends that sold shit before the pandemic, and um, I was lucky enough to like sell something as a producer that was animated before the pandemic. And because I wanted to, clo- I mean, not the pandemic before the fucking strike. Yeah. yeah. And because they it wanted is a pandemic, yeah, the strike because, is a pandemic. Because they wanted to close it so fast, nine days. I had people that close an, another network pilot in nine fucking. I'm like. Why don't they just do this all the time? I know. It's like awful. what are we, like, everything takes so long. Yeah, dude. I'm chasing I'm I told you I was working. I've been chasing them the, the money on it. I'm like, guys, like I've been doing this for six weeks. Like, you know, like <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> I know. It's it's very frustrating how long everything takes. The obviously the best way to do it is to pitch a network with a studio that has that, you know, like yes. universal to NBC. That's the only way things move fast. Yeah. Or, you know, what also was very fast that, that I experienced is no producer, no studio, direct to network. That way, it's like immediate. Like I like when when I did that, I remember like I sold it on Friday and I had like the offer on Monday, and it's like that just never happens. It always takes fucking forever. Do you think it's easier to sell something? I mean, because that proves the anti- uh, the antithesis of what I'm going to say. In my experience, when you don't have like a baller ass producer like a Bill Lawrence or a Lord and Miller or fucking Whitney or whoever it's Kevin Hart, it's harder because they're like, okay, well, like what what can I go to my boss and be like, we have to well. It's weird also because like you are of your own entity, Dan, like, you know, you are a fucking celebrated comic as well. But to me, I was always like, if I don't have talent or if I don't have a producer, like what makes them need to buy this? So it's good to hear that you can do it without. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's just, it just, it's such an cliche thing to say, but it's like, how good is the idea? Yeah. You know, like they'll, the, I, I feel confident where that, like any really good idea will sell, yeah. you know, but, and the more you package you know, you, it's also the packaging is just a guarantee way. Like if you just need to sell a show and you really are 
into this idea. Packaging it is good. The only problem is that when you package a show with a producer, a talent, a studio, you just have to know going into it that that's like three levels of notes that you're going to do before it gets to the network. And yeah. the network is the only person who fucking actually knows what they want, even though sometimes they don't. But that is that's the answer always. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times you're juggling other people's opinions until you get to the answer. And that's just that's just, but that's just what the process. Speaking of process, what was it like? selling uh indebted and getting that on the air and working with adam and just like having your own fucking show that must have been incredible and let me let me rephrase that having your own network comedy in a time where there were so few of them but you were you know making a fucking great show thank you it was awesome i loved it i mean that process was great i did it with doug robinson and sony and we actually Shouts. pitched that show um we pitched that show and no one bought it and we had like our, our last meeting set up and Doug called me. He's like, we need to fucking re-break this pitch. Because the year before I went out with Doug and we sold, we had like a bidding war, you know, giant penalty and they didn't even fucking make the pilot. So then we were, we thought like, oh, this year it's going to be just as the same things that happen yeah. again. No, that's show business, right? So no, no one. What, year, what years were this? You're hot. It, you're cold, baby. This was 2000, like. 16 2000 no 2017 2018 okay back um, when people were still buying network comedies for the most part yeah right and uh anyway so then we re you know rebroke the pitch went out and sold it to NBC so we only had one buyer you know which is so funny cuz like the year before we had like every network bought it and there was this big penalty and they still didn't make it so but that process was the best process because they sort of liked the idea right away they gave very little notes in the story area, the outline, same thing. And like NBC was awesome. The whole time they're like, we think this is great. We love this. We think this is really funny. This is good. And then it just kept on happening. And then they kept on being positive and I'd like do rewrites, but it was a very smooth process. And then we made the pilot and then it got picked up and it was awesome. I mean, it's very hard, as you know, to work in a multicam because you just are rewriting the show every single night, you yeah. know? Um, so it was, you know, very late and I would leave my house at 7 a.m. and come home at 2 a.m. And it was like one of those things. Yeah. Um, but it was really fun. I love Adam Pally. I mean, he was he's so fucking funny. We, we had a really good time. We had a fun. The writers were great. Um, it was a really good experience. Can you tell me about the moment you got the call that we're, we're making your show? I was at Arts Deli. Um, <laughs> Fabulous. With, with with my two kids, I would like took them to like you know, out for breakfast and it was like a full, full chaos. And <laughs> Doug called me and then Sony called me and then they, you know, brought in an NBC and then Tracy was like, we're going to pick up your show. And I was like, Oh my God. And I was like, I'm in arts deli. And, I, <laughs> and then, and then I was like, so excited. I like called my wife. I was like, come pick me up. And then, <laughs> and then, pick me up. And then she got the kids and then they're like, you need to go to um, upfronts, you know, tomorrow. <laughs> so then I was like, fuck. So then I drove to Paul Smith to get a, this is a true story. I drove to Paul Smith to get a suit for the upfronts and I was feeling so fucking good. I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. Truly, no one is better than me. And then in that moment, the door opens and it's Kevin Hart walking into Small Smith. And I was like, what the fuck? I was like, Kevin, this is my moment. What are you doing here? This is my moment. And then he was like, it was just great. And then I ended up just getting a great suit and went to upfronts and it was, it was really fun. And then staffing was very stressful, but, um, but everything, you know, and, and making the show was just, you know, we Fran Drescher was in the show. She's like super talented, yeah. you know, very famous. Was she on the show when you guys sold that? Was she a part of the show or she no. was a, a cast that you attached she attached to the script? Yeah, yeah. She she yeah, she she, she read she read with um uh 
she she didn't read, but she 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 got the offer once the show happened. Um, Adam Adam was the first one cast. Got it. Um, yeah. Uh. I can't imagine. I feel like when people are like, Matt, why do you do this? It's like so fucking like masochistic. I'm like, because that moment when you like sell something in the room or yeah. they call you to tell you you're picking up your show, like you feel like the most, it's like cocaine on fucking steroids. You I just know. feel like the best, smartest person ever. And also what was really fun about multicams, even though I know they're, ch- they're very challenging, filming in front of a live audience is like electric. And for me, like coming from standup for so long, I really feel like, multi-cam and producing it and running a multi-cam for a live audience is like the closest thing that you could get to stand up as a writer and it's it's great you know it's just uh it's a fun it's a fun and uh, to me it just feels like true show business you know it's just like feels like you're wearing a suit you're on set you know people are dancing it's happening you're laughing you're changing jokes constantly it's a great it's a great time i love that you wear a suit uh wh- where did the wearing the suit for show night come from it was just something that I was told when I did punch up, I think, on Two Broke Girls. It was like, hey, uh, bring, uh, you know, you got to wear a blazer or something. Same with Bill. He was like, you know what? You get to wear sweatpants and fucking sandals every other day of the week. When it's show night, you wear a blazer. Yeah. That was the thing. We were like, yes. Yeah. yeah okay. You do it. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. Uh, what was it like being at Upfronts? Like, because to me, as an outsider looking in, it just like feels like, you know, like the con. It just looks like the most fun. And everyone's just like telling you how great you are and giving you fucking drinks and kudos and shit. Yeah, it's like the same sort of thing like what we talked about before. That moment between like selling the show and then <laughs> writing the story Before area, you have to do work. It, it's the same thing, but it's like bigger, you know. Yep. So everyone's coming over to you. Oh, my God. Like we're making. I remember one executive was like, we're going to make so many of these episodes. And I was like, <laughs> yes, it's happening. <laughs> and it was just a great uh a great time and then of course it immediately goes away and you're like what the fuck we had that conversation <laughs> drunk at 30 rock um but yeah speaking of uh when you get the call that there's going to be no more was that also from doug is that who who calls you and tells you like hey dan unfortunately. well that was an interesting situation because the show premiered during the pandemic so it actually did like kind of well when the when when the show was first out and you know we had a few cool like articles and reviews about it and then um it was seeming like we were we were getting picked up like we were feeling like we were getting picked up so i had like a meeting i pitched out all the season two um and they were really into it and then there was just a huge shift like comcast like changed all the people at top and the guy from sports came in and then it was they cleared the house and i think the only comedy that came back was superstore jesus christ so it was uh it was it was it was unfortunate but luckily, there was a giant pandemic going on, so <laughs> it was it was it was like the worst time to complain because you're like, my fucking show got canceled. I thought it was gonna get picked up, and they're like, everyone is dead. You're like, okay, well, can we talk about my sitcom? <laughs> oh my god, I love so that. that. Was um, so that that was it, it was it was a slow it was a slow burn because it went from like, oh, we're definitely getting picked up to like, oh, we might not. Oh, now we're definitely not. And then they call, they're like, yeah, we we can't. That's so yeah. that is so fucking Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. It's like typical like. You're hot. You're done. You're over. Yeah. It's done. Um, you sometimes collaborate and work with Rachel, your wife. Yes. Yeah. She worked on my show. We we've that's really the only time we've um we've like fully worked together. Because I've but, I've worked with another couple, and so I was curious, like, what's that like working with your wife? I would love to work with my wife. She is in a totally different industry, but it looked, <laughs> you know, it feels like it might be uh, fun because there's probably so much comedy banter between you two and then other people, you know. Yeah, it was really fun. I mean, it was definitely like halfway through her working on my show, we realized this was a bad idea because like logistically with kids, it was a nightmare <laughs> and we were shooting at Sony. So it was like five hours from our house. So it was always really like we're like, we can't. 
like in, in those moments where, where I thought I was getting picked up for season two, we'd have this conversation. It's like, hey, we are uh, we can't you can't work on the show again. It's too difficult. But when we were there, I mean, her ideas are so good. She's so smart and funny. So it was it was helpful. But logistically for our life, it was just nuts. It was the it was the craziest year ever. Um, I also wanted to ask you, I know I'm bopping around a, a lot, but I think uh, you have wonderful insight because my theory is it doesn't matter if you're a great re- writer, if you don't fucking know how to like put the puzzle pieces together and produce. And I'm someone who's like, yeah, I have a slate. And you are also someone who's like, yeah, my slate. Like yeah. what else is on your slate? Um, and <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think it's great. So I wanted to know if you could talk me through a, like, do, did you have like an assistant? Like, I know you didn't, but like, how did you know? Or like, uh, cause for me, the slate is just like, Oh, like I, I, I still make my G cal. Like it would be if I was making it for my boss at Paramount, like, you know, setting meetings and doing like, I have a very like studio regimented, whatever. Yeah. Um, and other than just saying like, yeah, sure. I have fucking 10 balls floating at all time. You probably really like have a slate and know like this one's in production. This one has producers attached. This one's about to be pitched. Like take me through your slate, Dan. Yeah. Well, I do, I do work with an assistant that, that helps with all that. I have a board that is, that is just sort of project by project, you know? And then I basically just, just write, write them all out on a giant whiteboard where it's like, you know, this, this is a pilot. This is a script waiting for deal to close, you know, in production, uh, you know, editing, you know, and I just kind of go through it and I have, you know, basically I, w- after indebted, I was, I was in a deal with Sony for, for, for a couple of years. And then after during or right after that, right dur- during and right after, okay. you know, so then I, and because previous to that, I was on the Goldbergs for uh, like four years. So I was really only working with Sony for a really long time. And then like last year was the first year I was free to like develop everywhere. So that was really exciting for me because you know, it's, it's just easier when you have so many options to, to sell a show. So I basically sort of started working with multiple people and everything kind of takes a long time, but then everything sort of ended up kind of going at the same time. And it was like a little bit overwhelming, but I just, you know, just take it like day by day and project by project. Um, and that's kind of how I do it. I'll like hook up, you know, there is, you know, I'll, I'll bring on a producer, you know, to develop the show and then, then we'll bring bring it to either the studio or, you know, go right to the network, depending on the producer's deal or whatever. And then there's like a few projects where I had don't have a um, don't have a studio and it's just me and HBO. Uh, and then it's and, you know, and then there's not even a producer. So it's, I mean, there's not even a um, uh, wait, what am I saying? Sorry, I just lost track of what I'm saying. Yeah, I thought you were about to tell me about your HBO project. <laughs> yeah, no, I was yeah, asking about your slate. My slate, right? Sorry. So and how then, you and now you know how you produce the slate? Yeah, so I produce slate by just I get I get each idea and then I figure out how I'm going to do it. I put it on the board. I put it on the board once it becomes a real thing, like re- real thing meaning you know there's a producer, there's pages, it's happening, okay. you know, and then you know just one at a time, just sell them, sell them, sell them, sell them, and then just wait and see what happens. I think uh, you have to be a salesman all the time. And so I also ask you, Dan, are you someone who relies heavily on representatives or you're like, no, like I have a relationship now with Kevin Hart and Mike, whatever his name is. So when I want to ask if they want to do a show, I just fucking, you know, hit them up on email or text or whatever the fuck it is. I mean, both. I, lo- I love I love my agent. Like I'm like a I the, they've been super helpful always. Um, but but at this point, I do know like lots of different people. So I'll bring things in. But a lot of times like they will say, hey, like for this Hulu project I have, they were like, hey, bring in, um, they they are looking to do a show with you and Heartbeat. And it's like, great, I know Heartbeat because I have the Peacock show with them. Let's get together. I have like a shorthand with the executive Mike Stein. We figured out the pitch pretty quickly, went in, sold it, 
and then attached Beck Bennett to be in it. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is like a great project because it's like a super funny office comedy produced by Kevin starring Beck. Mike O'Brien's a producer on it. Like it just became like a thing, you know? So that's kind of how I kind of put the pieces together, I guess. Yeah, I think there, you know, there are some writers that I know they're like, no, like I like to do everything by the book and through my representatives. I'm like, yeah, but like, don't you feel like, you, you know, part of the hustle is like you're making connections and you're meeting people and like, why not? Not that I'm trying to cut my representatives out. I, mean, I think we have the same representatives yeah. um, and they're wonderful, but you know, sometimes things just come together organically. And I, I think Hollywood is kind of like high school and the more people you're friends with and the more people you like you, they'll want to sit with you at the cafeteria or go to a fucking, Oh yeah, that's you know, all it is. It's, you know. it's not, you know, that hard. Exactly. I, I agree. It's like, you just kind of bring the people in and go, Oh, this person might be good with this and that. And you just kind of move, move things around. Um, Dan, can I ask you about stand-up now that I've interrogated you about being a writer? You know, yeah, sure, are? please. What was it like touring the fucking country with John Mulaney this summer? Because to those of us on Instagram, it was like, Dan ha Dan ha is having his Miss Maisel moment, yeah. and it was wonderful to, to witness. So take us through that from a first-person POV. It was, um, it was amazing. So, you know, really... What happened was I was doing doing stand-up forever. Then Since you were nine. Since I was nine, mm -hmm. I've been doing stand-up. And then, you know, I had a show and then the pandemic. So there was, like, really, like, two, three years of, like, not being able to perform as much as I would like to. And then I started performing as the world opened up. There was some outdoor shows in L.A. And, um, and John was coming out of rehab, and he was like, hey, I'm going on this arena tour. Do you um, want to do like a date or two? And I was like, Yeah, sure. That sounds that sounds awesome. So I looked at the schedule and I was like, I'll go to uh, Milwaukee or I'll go I'll go to Minnesota and Nebraska. That's Why did I, you pick those those two places? I felt like those would be like the least amount of pressure, like okay. immediately, you know, going into an arena. You know, that was, so, that was my question. Was like, oh, were you like, uh, yes, I'll go, but also, oh my god, <laughs> yeah. And then and then and then I get a call. I, I agree to do this like in like you know four weeks, and I'm come back from Hawaii on my way to Passover Seder and he texts me and he's like, Hey, uh, this comic Ricky has COVID. Can you come to Red Rocks tomorrow? And I was like, tomorrow. He's like, yeah, uh, tomorrow. And I was like, okay. He's like, don't back out. I'm like, I'm not, I didn't even agree yet. But then, <laughs> but so I was like, fuck, I'm going to go to Red Rocks. And then I get there and, uh, and then that was the first show I did. And it was nuts. And I was like listening to my like old album, like in backstage to remember some old jokes and uh, and I just kind of got like thrown to the fires. Red Rocks, we did two shows, 7,000 people. It was nuts. It was so fun. And then uh, and then then we came back and then I did those two shows that I said I do. And then we did Berkeley. And then we came back to L.A. and it was a Netflix comedy festival. And he was like, you should do um, the forum with me. That was so fun. I was like, OK. And then I'm like driving into fucking the forum. Did you get and to go down the ramp that like Michael Jordan? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Magic yeah, yeah. Johnson. Exactly. And then I went down all the ramps. I've been inside every arena now. It's hilarious. Um, and now, uh, and then, and then he was like, and you got to come to the Hollywood Bowl too. And I was like, yeah, I got to the Hollywood Bowl. And then he was like, and then we was just like, just do the whole tour. So then I did it. And then that's kind of how it all happened. And it was the greatest time ever. <laughs> how are awesome. you ever going to go back to just doing like, you know, 10 minutes at the store after <laughs> doing, and how, how long were you um, doing when you were performing, you know, warming up for him? Like, like 15, 20 minutes. Got it. And was yeah. there ever like a crowd work based on where you were? Like, were you just, no, were you, there, were you, you were just fucking freestyling? There's no, there's no crowd work because there's no, the oh, crowds are so big, you know, right. a lot of times in, a, in arena shows, 
the cameras are on you and there's giant monitors too. So you don't, it's not even, except Madison Square Garden, you couldn't really see the crowd. Mm. Um, but Madison Square Garden, they sort of had like a little bit of like a low light situation, which was awesome because you could like be on stage and you could see all of the garden and it was great. Oh my God. Uh, what was it like performing at the Hollywood fucking bowl? That was awesome. Cause that was, I actually like did not know that I was performing. Right. So I was only planning to perform these two shows. So he was doing the Hollywood bowl. I got a lot of people tickets to see him because people, you know, hit me up like John's coming. Can I get a ticket? I was sure. I was like, I actually got all these, you know, um, these executives wanted to come. Like I like, I like set the whole thing up. And, uh, and then I didn't even have time to tell them I, I was performing. Like they were texting me and emailing me and being like, Hey, is that, is that, I don't know what that was weird. Um, I had no idea. They had no idea that I was performing. So then I just kind of came out. It was awesome. It was so fun. It was great. It was it was so great. Kenya Barris was in the front row. Was your was your we were were your parents there with wife, kids? Like No, I mean my yeah, my wife and kids were there. And so, we, it was it was it was the only time where parking at the Hollywood Bowl was easy. <laughs> That's a great I like the you've, you've you've got bits from doing the Hollywood Bowl. Do your do your kids like think you're a fucking rock star now? I don't, I don't think so. They, they, they quickly get used to everything. Right. It's like, is there LaCroix here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean like, but they've, they, they have a writer now. Oh it? yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my daughter introduced John on one of the shows. She like came out in Seattle and introduced him. It was very cute. Is that the, uh, maybe I, did I see that on Instagram? Maybe probably. <sighs> I feel like I posted that. That's fucking great. And you guys known each other since forever. Yeah. 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 Since like the college humor tour or something like that. I thought baby J was awesome. I yeah. really liked it. Was that what, and that was that what he was doing when he was going this whole year? Baby J was he doing it? That was yeah, it. Right, that right. Was, that oh, was of the... course it was. Why the fuck am I asking yeah, such yeah. a stupid fucking question? Yeah. What's wrong with you? I don't know. You don't know how comedy works? No, I do. I do. <laughs> but you know, uh, I've got such, such talent here that I revere. <laughs> I think Dan, honestly, the, re the, when I became, when I was like, that's fucking hysterical. The joke that you told that maybe be like, I got a fucking, it was at Whitney's house during COVID. It was oh, like an really? Instagram clip of you where you're like, I know the only reason I'm here is because I'm the only male comic in Whitney's phone that hasn't been canceled. <laughs> and as someone over here who has worked with some of those comics, you may have been referencing. I was like, that guy is fucking hysterical. <laughs> um, and you also, you know, your, your passion for t-shirts sort of led me down the rabbit hole, which is uh, how I ended up asking you to go to coffee. And, you know, I think, you know, Haldeman tells a couple stories about me. One is that I walked in on Adam Stiegel in the shower at Undateable. Did I ever tell you he that? He showered at Undateable? Well, okay. <laughs> I guess I'll, this is great, too. Uh, <laughs> very quickly on Undateable, I saw that, like, Bill plays basketball. And that's, like, sort of, like, if you play with him, you know, like, you're, that's where, like, that's where the deals are made and the action is happening. Right. And, like, he's asking what you think about story pitches and in the locker room. And there's, like, this collegial whatever. And it was like Adam and Bill and Liza and Jeff Ingold, like everybody from Doozer and the writers that like want to be part of the like Doozer frat go to the gym during lunch. Like the gym to work the gym out and or, Warner to, Brothers. Or, or to... To work out. Okay, not, not to play Which basketball. Which is so antithetic. So, on Tuesdays they played ball, but the other days of the week was Bill in the gym. We did that at Sony too, on Goldberg's. Me and C. Baslin would always work out at lunch. Okay, great. And I, I, I want to ask you that because it's incredibly antithetic. It's so... People, when I tell them that, they're like, writers were being healthy and i was like yeah but, but it was for especially the ripped writers <laughs> um so like day one of my okay i'm gonna come to the gym too bill at like you know lunch or whatever he's like people get on the golf car with him and they drive down to the warner gym That's amazing and, and i run uh everyone else is lifting weights whatever 
and I didn't realize that there's like a system to the showers and the shower curtains where if the shower door is closed, that means it's occupied. And if the shower door is half open, that means it's yours for the taking. I just like didn't think and I wasn't wearing glasses and I was like overwhelmed because I wanted to be cool in front of Bill and Adam. But I opened the shower curtain and then Steakiel's in there and he goes, uh, hey, dude. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And I closed the fucking curtain on him. Wow. We go to like a run through right after this. And I, I tell some of the writers, I'm like a third week. This is like th- week three as a staff writer on my first job. And I right. just walked in on my boss naked. Yeah. And I tell these, this, <laughs> I tell this writing team, Seth Cohen and Amy Pocha, what happened? I'm like, I think it's cool. Like, it wasn't a big deal. Like, Adam's, Adam's super cool about it. Like, not going to make a thing. And normally I would fucking spiral. I don't know how I didn't spiral because I just figured like, you know, he's a good dude and I've sort of got this weird reputation as like this young jester idiot. And we come back from the table read. Adam puts his script down. It's like, so, uh, House walked on me in the shower at lunch. <laughs> and uh, like a week later, like some UTA agents, including his, who uh, hauled him in, et cetera, are there. And like the managers from Cabin Prone and they're like, so we heard you fucking walked in on Adam in the show. It like be- that became my claim to fame. Right. Walking in, that's on him a great in the thing. That you 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 need that when you're a staff writer. You need someone something to make fun of. I, yeah, I think it was something that endeared me uh, to the group uh, very quickly, but also was like a fucking nightmare. Just like in <laughs> that moment, so I was like, I'm I'm being asked to leave before I even get my foot in the yeah. door. Yeah, so the the showering post gym at work was always difficult because yeah. there was just like long lines and it. You know, my buddy Steve never even showered. He would just throw on a shirt and go back up. No way. Yeah, but he was mostly just crushing iron, so he wasn't sweating. Okay, so he wasn't not, doing 5Ks yeah, on the yeah, treadmill. Yeah, not, not, not a lot of cardio. When you work out, what? Do, by the way, do you work out now still? I yeah, mean, I I obviously, out. I should be able to tell because, you know, whatever. Come on, you're, you're looking at me. Do I look like I work out? Do you have a home gym? I have a, I, I have a home gym, but I, I work out um, at a gym. Okay. Yeah, Are yeah. you an Equinox guy? I'm not. Okay. I don't. I, I don't like um uh, not that I don't like Equinox, but the problem with that Equinox is I don't wanna see too many people. And I feel like for me, getting to the gym and working out is all like time, you know? So I can't be interrupted by like so many different people being like, Hey, what's up, Bobby? Like the small talk of the gym I don't like because it takes up too much time. Yeah, that's why I go to the, I used to go to this little gym called Easton on Beverly and right. uh, whatever. I don't know if you know it, but I know that. It used to be a haven for young gay male actors in the 20s, 30s, I believe. And they're still, they're like headshots are on the wall. Oh, great. Um, and it's a one, Diane Weist worked out there. And like, I would love seeing Diane Weist just like fucking pumping on Yeah, her, I, li- which, I like those kind of weird small gyms. Yeah, that's uh, where I'm at. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I work out. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, you also uh, love goss. I don't have any hot goss for you, but like, right. it, is there any town goss going on right now? Like, you know, we don't want to talk about the strike, but like, what are you hearing? Are there things in the ether? Like I don't know. I mean, I, I, I. It's not really goss, but I guess really what we need to happen is the DGA and after and after need to go on strike two, and then the the strike will be over immediately. That's the goss that is not really goss. That no, just seems yeah. to be like what it is. But it was funny because Fran Drescher is the president of SAG. <laughs> oh yeah. So it is funny, and I'm in SAG, so she leaves a voicemail, you know, as the president, like, this is Fran Drescher. Don't forget voting begins. And I, like, had, like, PTSD when I had that voicemail. I was like, oh, my God. Because she'd be like, Dan, do you want chopped liver after the table read? We're, like, at 10 a.m. She's like, yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? 
Yeah. She, she, First of all, why is Fran doing craft service? She 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 brought her homemade um chopped liver for the writers after one of the table reads, and we had to like go to her dressing room and eat. I love chopped, chopped liver. liver. Was it good? It was great. Yeah, it was awesome. Does your mom make like a little legendary chopped liver from years of being a, a Jewish person? At, like, My mom does not, but Fran Drescher does. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, Dan, like one of the last things I'll ask you is. Uh, a lot of writers coming up. That's, you know, the bread and butter of this podcast is people want to know, like, oh, how you broke in, yada, yada, like, how do you get an agent? But I ask you, um, because you mentioned you were a first-time staff writer on Whitney, and even though you were friends with her, like, what do you tell young writers that are going to go and have their first job in a writer's room with a group of other comic writers or even drama writers? Don't talk that much. That is the key to making it as a staff writer in a sitcom room. You can't talk that much and you if you talk you just have to be funny for me like for me all i really care about is if someone's funny truly that's how i judge you that's how i look at you <laughs> if you're not funny and you're in a writer's room i'm like what's going on it's very upsetting to me as someone who only likes comedy you know so i find that if you are a staff writer you want to be as funny as possible and you don't want to like talk too much because the truth is you know, writer's rooms, there's people, it, there's levels, there's levels, you know? So there are like lower, like I remember I was in a room one time when someone got upset, they were called lower level. I'm like, but that is what you are. You're at the lower <laughs> level of the writer's room because there's people who've made like hundreds of episodes of television <laughs> who know what they're talking about. So let's look to them always. That's just what I think. Um, so I would say, and, and Betsy Thomas, who was the showrunner, um, of Whitney, when we had our like, you know, mid-year meeting and talking about how we're doing, she said to me, she's like, Dan, you don't need to talk this much. You don't need to pitch so much. Cause I was like always <laughs> wanting to pitch something. And I realized, you know, as you know, a showrunner and upper level writer now, when you're in a room, people are sort of pitching so much and they don't have the experience. They don't need to because they're they're already there. They're already won. So if you just sort of think about things before you say it's it's hard because you're so anxious and you're always thinking, Oh, I'm bombing, I'm gonna get fired. But you, you're more likely to not get fired if you talk less and you're always funny than to talk nonstop and not be that funny. A hundred percent. And working on indebted on your own show, like were there certain things that you saw other showrunners do that you implemented or certain things that you may have seen other bosses do that you knew not to do? Like what was your style of show running? Like I tried to be like very transparent at all times, like always tell everyone what was going on. I also kind of came, you know, very prepared when I started the show with like all my ideas everything that, you know, everything I thought was funny, things that I didn't think was funny, you know, so we wouldn't do those, you know, don't pitch that kind of stuff. I don't, don't think that's that funny, but you know, I came prepared. For Undateable, we each had to come in um, with 10 A stories, 10 B stories, and 10 C runners. Just wow. like, just like, to, and they didn't have to be fleshed out or whatever. It's just like, you know, uh, Danny gets a job. Uh, Brent Morin, uh, you know, does X. Uh, right. Pretty simple shit, but everyone came like prepared and I... I thought that was a great idea. And that's something that we sort of stole on Fairfax was like, yeah, come in like uh, with an idea of just like anything, any, just, just to get people fucking talking and comfortable. I found yeah. that's truly what it's good for is like young staff writers who may not feel comfortable. It's like, dude, everyone's pitching shitty ideas. So like you can pitch your shitty ideas. Too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and what's next for you, dog? Like, you know, without, without the specifics, What's next on the horizon after this whirlwind tour, uh, you know, where you have been, you're now beloved by the town. What's, what's next? Um, the, the next thing I'm going to be picketing tomorrow at CBS Radford. <laughs> so that's looking really good. Um, is no, that your I, favorite pitch hang? Uh, yeah, I like CBS Radford. I did not like universal cause the parking was not great. 
I'm going to... What's the parking like there? I, I think this is important info for everybody out there. The parking at Universal, you got to go deep. I had to park like in a park parking lot, like <laughs> a mile away. Like that just kills my momentum for yeah. picketing. Yep. Um, and I'm going to check out Paramount this week, which I have not been to, but I'm going to check that out. Got it. Because that was my next question is, what do you think of like the Weezer showing up? I like Weezer. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what do you... Th- like? Uh, what is your take on uh, should it be like oh we're fucking having a good time like it's new year's eve in times square <laughs> yeah or no like i i love i love the bands coming but yeah no like when i get these emails that we're all getting where it's like not to make fun of these people but, but dress like, up as your favorite newsies character yeah uh, my, my <laughs> wife went to that one because <laughs> she loves newsies so, so my that's brother. The problem there's, no problem. Is, there's a lot of people who like different things so i totally get it but yeah i feel like yeah we don't want to be having like the best time of our lives because we are <laughs> striking and not getting paid but i appreciate the enthusiasm from everyone yeah uh i don't need a drum circle i don't think or like some people have like jam boxes you know i don't i don't yeah i like people with the sign tap like oh blah, 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 when you come to the end of the line um like i didn't come to see guster like i'm just trying to <laughs> fucking pick it so i can work again and get residuals <laughs> oh my god by the way is speaking of residuals and i can cut this out i'm just genuinely curious um is indebted like airing other places in the world right now where you are able to get residuals from no it's not even on peacock because it's half owned by sony so it's one of those situations where it's nowhere except on dvds in my closet got it got it same (laughs) with us except our star was canceled so they will never revive it oh right on top of being a warner brothers uh does whitney play anywhere ever yeah, Whitney, I think, is popular in India. Oh. That's, why, that's what she says. I don't know. She I have, lies, so who knows? I, <laughs> uh, I have, like, by the way, if you, if you, the reason, Whitney should be the example of why residuals, because she has more money than God from two broke girls, and I'm just like, dog, how do we get that? Like, that's what we're all working here for. Right. Like, yes, I love people, and I love being in a room, and I want to do comedy, but, like, I thought I could support a living like in a nice way i know and i, I know. feel like we got to the party when the cops are coming <laughs> i know but i think hopefully that will change with the strikes over yeah yeah and i i still believe you could still do that on a network you know you could still create a cbs multicam and have a room for five years and get a house with a horse you know whatever she has <laughs> <laughs> i dude i was stoked to pitch a um a multicam right before the strike mm-hmm. and uh Great concept, personal way in, not to toot my own horn, but beep, beep. And uh, it's just like, I, I love pitching network uh, multicams. Most people, like, they poo-poo them, but I am glad that I have a brother in multi in you because the people that know how to do them well, I think you can knock them out of the fucking park. Yeah, I mean, still, they're, they're, impo- they're, they're hard, but every, everything's hard, you know? Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, next up, before the strike, I shot a pilot for Comedy Central that, um, you know, it's a WGA show, so we won't get picked up until the... Mm-hmm. Strike is over, but uh, it's in and it seems really funny. Um, I did it with me and Natasha Legero, so we'll see how that goes. Um, and uh, yeah, then I also, like I think we talked about, but I have a few scripts in, mm-hmm. so I'm just sort of like waiting on a bunch of different, bunch of different things. Are we going on any family vacays soon? Uh, my kids are going to sleepaway camp, so we're gonna go. Oh, it's to- almost June. Where okay, yeah. where are they going to sleep? I'm a sleepaway camp kid. Are you? Uh, I am not. Lucky. I went I went for one summer. And you were like, and fuck th- this. And then I was like, I'm going to do musical theater instead. <laughs> did you do musical theater? Where did, did you go where like Braff went and all the kids went? No, I was in Stanford at the Summer Youth Theater. Okay. But I did Bye Bye Birdie and Annie and uh, all, all of it. Anything goes. Um, so they're going to go to a sleepaway camp on the East Coast and uh, we're going to drop them off there. And then I'm going to, I'm going to, this summer I'm going to just do doing a bunch of stand up 
comedy clubs going to Austin, San Diego, um, Stanford, Connecticut. So I'm going to kind of keep that going while I'm also waiting for the strike to be over and all this other stuff. Well, Dan, I, I, I honestly, I appreciate you coming over here and doing this. I uh, love your house. Dude, thank you very much. It's it, awesome. I'll wrap it up and just say, dude, thank you. I, <laughs> I know I know, I don't have the, uh, the fucking uh, fan base that some of the other podcasts that you may have uh, frequented. Dude, this is great. But I so fucking appreciate it. And I, and I want to tell you truly from the bottom of my heart, uh, you have ignited something in me of like, I may need to start doing stand up again. Because when I saw that you were doing that and writing, I was like, well, he fucking does truly like what you want to do. And so I started coming up with this like idea of like how I would do that and yada, yada, yada. Um, because part of me thinks I was fucking born to perform in a weird way. And, and, and part of doing this podcast is because. I, uh, if you gave me, if you had a magic wand, I would be a fucking talk show host. Like I should replace James Corden. And I think like I do my best work with another person, not maybe uh, in an hour by myself on a microphone in front of 15,000 people. I think I could probably do it if I did it for do many, you have many, a many, twin many, many, many brother? years. No, our brothers are very funny. The Sklar brothers are, you have a brother. Is he a twin? No. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But he, he's an agent. He's an agent. Yes. So yeah. he's kind of like you guys are in the same stratosphere. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. It's great. Um, but yeah, Dan, like you fucking are, are doing living the dream. And like, I wow, truly I got to come to this podcast no, dude, again. No, dude, <laughs> truly. Like, I think it's so fucking cool and inspiring. And there was and I told Nikki Schwartz, write a version of this and Andy Secunda, too, is that when I was trying to break into writing, I saw, you know, your guys group of friends and like mainly through Instagram and you know, it looks so fun. I was like, Oh, like, yeah, like that's what a writer's room is like. And they have fucking friends. And I would meet some of these people at their crawfish boil or whatever, you know, Will and Nikki's, whatever the fuck. Yeah. And you guys made me think like, there's community here. You don't have to do this alone in a room. And like their writers don't have to be like weird fucking mouth breathers that hang out, you know, by themselves, they can be fucking cool people. And so I just, I truly, uh, my hat is off to you. And I, I, I'm sorry I didn't know you were a comedian, but I do fucking now (laughs) in a big way, and I think you're fucking great. I love it. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Dan. Dan.